0: you may also like a show about the things you may also like things like visiting spain in april of 2018 and 2019 avery and i traveled to spain our first trip we went to barcelona where we saw messi score three goals
1: and messi comes through the crowd
0: And we did a whole bunch more over the course of three days in Barcelona. Then we got on the train and went to Sevilla, Granada, and Madrid. In 2019 we went back to Barcelona, then up north to San Sebastian, Logroño, and Bilbao before heading back to Barcelona. Now, I'm reluctant to promote Spain to you people because frankly, I don't want the place to be overrun with the likes of you. I'm just kidding. James Blick, however, is in the business of tourism. And I've got him ready to go for a podcast chat all about his YouTube channel and his company, Devour Tours. He knows everything you need to know about Spain before you go to Spain. But first, let's take a trip over to Quarantine Central and see how Avery's doing. We're going to talk about how we fell in love with Spain.
2: It started with the love of the food, because as you know, you and I are both foodies. And we got there and we realized they had the best food that we'd ever tasted. Now, we have been to Italy, so Italy also has delicious food, but I think it was the lifestyle and the way food is served, which really attracted you and I to the country. We were first worried, oh no, it's late eating, we're going to be hungry, we're not really late night people, but then... We realized the tapa lifestyle and the pincho lifestyle.
0: And now you have no qualms about going out for dinner at 8.30 at night.
2: In fact, it's the new norm for us. I think we tend to like to eat a little bit later. Also, we really liked the small portion. Like, we've always been sampler people. I don't remember a time where you and I ever ordered an individual meal, ate it, and left. We always like to share appetizers, we even share main courses. I think that that was what really appealed to us there, was the sharing aspect of the community.
0: And what has James Blick meant to your love of Spain?
2: It's kind of embarrassing, but I will admit it. I think we have probably watched James and Yali, their videos of their food tours in different areas all over Spain and even in Portugal and we have watched their videos over and over and it's like a gastronomic delight for us.
0: So here we are, we live in Winnipeg which is a cold part of the planet and we're inside, it's dark a lot and we just watch YouTube videos of James and Yali eating in Spain
2: true uh, our kids now call us youtubers because every time they walk in we're watching food videos of Spain but just seeing and we actually mark down the places James and Yali tell us to go it's not just for show we intend on getting to all of those places and some of them we've been to and when you can see a place that you've been to being videoed and and um, broadcast it's amazing because it's absolutely delightful. And it's not just me. Matt is writing down every single restaurant that you guys ever show. And the way you do your videos are really amazing. Like we watch a lot of food shows. And there's something special about the way you present. The pure joy you guys have in eating is very reminiscent of us. So I think that's why we're so attracted to your videos and tours.
1: I'm literally just editing it right now. It's much shorter. It's an interesting thing because... (laughs) You know what I've enjoyed about the videos, and you know people who maybe who already know me or know you know know the channel, kind of don't mind them maybe being a bit longer because it's kind of like me eating and drinking and falling around the kitchen. Uh, but nobody's ever going to find those in search because nobody's going to click on a 25-minute video to, <laughs> to to learn how to make a tortilla. So I've got to kind of figure out how to balance personality with time. But anyway, the, the one I'm releasing today is inherently just shorter. It's just such a quick dish. It's just gambas al ajillo, garlic chili shrimp. So it's cooked in about two minutes once you put everything in the pan. When was your first trip to Spain? I can't remember. I think I might have been here for one night in 2006 in San Sebastian, just drove over. I was living in France. Uh, I moved to France for about nine months to teach English and Kiwi boy, in love with the idea of Europe, didn't know, young, kind of falling around Europe like I now fall around the kitchen. And... I think we went on a road well, we went on a road trip and I believe we might have spent a night in San Sebastian and thus crossed the border into Spain, but I cannot remember. I just remember the shape of La Concha Beach, the the the, the shape of San Sebastian's Beach in the bay, and I and I think that's where we were. <laughs> but obviously I'd had a few drinks and and uh and things like that so I think it was 2005 but um but actually no I, no I lie I'd been before then I'd been to Cannes my father works in the film industry so I'd been um I'd been there but but 2005 was really when I started living here
0: and when did you decide that you wanted to live in in Spain well I met uh, my wife in 2005
1: in Toulouse when we were living in uh, living in Toulouse and we met, we fell in love. We were together for about eight or nine months. We actually spoke French for the first few months of our relationship, which her French was much better than mine. And she's from Madrid. And so we, after leaving France in 2006, we actually spent about six months living in Madrid. Uh, but the plan was to move back to New Zealand. This is uh, back in sort of 2007. Uh, we, and we lived here for six months. And we went back to New Zealand because I was gonna be making TV commercials. I want to make movies and create, and be a screenwriter and a director. But once we went back to New Zealand for about four years till about 2011, it nothing, it never quite clicked. So it was always like, well, let's go back to Europe, let's go back to Spain. So it was really probably, yeah, about 2010, 2011, we were like, okay, we're going to live in Spain. And we moved back here, uh, no jobs, but um, just kind of figured it out and fell in love. I fell in love with the country and, and just sort of made the country my passion and my purpose, really.
0: What's the foundation for Devour Tours? How did it all start? My co-founding partner, Lauren, uh,
1: has a similar story to me. She was teaching English in Seville around the same time I'd sort of moved here, uh, sort of 2010 around there, and she loved food. She has a food blog, a cooking blog, she's a a trained uh, chef, and she had sort of been looking for a way to combine uh, tourism and food, and stumbled upon this idea of a food tour. This was about six months before we met. Uh, so she started giving a sort of a few tours in Madrid under a brand called Madrid Food Tour. And then about the same time, I had been writing. Uh, I was travel writing. I was writing for sort of freelance for a variety of travel newspapers or travel sections in newspapers, but it didn't really pay the bills. So I started to look at all this knowledge I was learning about Spain and see if I could guide to earn extra income and use the same knowledge I was using as a travel writer, uh, the knowledge about Spain. And I stumbled across her Facebook page. Uh, She'd actually posted a photo of Sweetbreads of mollejas, a really popular dish here in Madrid. And asked it was a little bit of content marketing on her part. Asked you know does anyone know what this what what this is? I'd been sort of stalking different tour companies in Madrid. Uh, I commented on it said I know what those are and I know exactly where you got them. She saw my profile saw I was a writer thought maybe I needed money was looking for guides uh, and we went out and and I showed her around and kind of started there and we decided instead of me being a guide we decided to partner up uh, and I designed our first evening tour. Uh, which is called Tapas Tavern in History, which we still have to the day. It's still our most popular tour. And it was just a love of food, a love of helping people contextualize and understand our home city, Madrid. It's really distressing for me when I see people visiting Madrid or anywhere that we have tours and they don't because it's hard to understand a destination. It's hard to understand the food, the culture. And so you just don't have as rich an experience as as possible. So really, our it really grew out of that, our desire to help people understand a place that they can have as rich an experience visiting local places, meeting locals as possible, Um, because that's what we want to do when we travel. You know,
0: I want to say those sweetbreads are from Casatoni. Oh, yeah, exactly. You've <laughs> tried them? Sadly, no, but they look so good in the video that you put out, and now we have to go back to Madrid just to try them.
1: It's so good. It's so easy. It's so it's so cheap. It's so informal, and that's the beauty. You know, sweetbreads are a dish that are so often on mission star menus, and meanwhile, you go to Casatoni, and for eight euros, you get this big plate of them cooked by Carlos, who's standing behind the bar, cooking them right in front of you in about four minutes, and they taste incredible. And so that's I think what I love about Spain particularly is this collision between food that kind of be- belongs on a on a very expensive menu and yet is served so often in such an informal way. I find that fascinating. So what are tapas? Um yeah, it's a good question. I've people get very hung up on the idea of small plates. Uh, at the beginning of some of our tapas tours we always ask people so you know what do you think tapas are do a little go around the group um and people generally say small plates or appetizers or something like that and really the goal of of, of a tapas tour um which is really where we started devour was giving tapas tours is to help people understand that it's so much more than that that in spain we have a verb which is tapear which effectively reflects the fact that for me uh, and i think for most spaniards Tapas and to eat tapas and to go out for tapas is actually more of a verb. Uh, it's something that you do. It's something that you go out. Yeah, you're going to eat. You're going to share food, but inherently in sharing food, that means that you're you're interacting with people around you. Uh, you're in often often standing in in the bars. You're eating tapas, so that means you're more likely to bump into the person next to you and and strike up a conversation with a stranger rather than having your own table. So I think for me, the experience of going out to a tapas bar is the experience of of really uh, the informality, the the sharing, the the fluidity of the experience, um, the talking to strangers, the talking to the bartender, the jokes, uh, all revolving around the idea that you're sharing these these small, or not always small, in Madrid we have raciones, which are actually large sharing plates. Um, <laughs> but they're still kind of tapas, it's all based around that sharing and that verb to tapear, to go for tapas, which you can eat tapas in New York, you can eat tapas in Chicago or in Auckland or in Sydney, but you can't do tapas outside of Spain. And I think that's what's key. That's the true experience.
0: And even inside Spain, there's different ways that tapas are approached. So for instance, my first trip, I went to Barcelona. You know, it's hard to find a free tapa in Barcelona, but then exactly. you, you move down to Seville. And then if you want a tapa, you got to order a drink.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It, 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 I think tapas has kind of, being simplified in people's minds so that it can be sold, which makes sense, you know, but tapas, and it's, you know, as a, as a thing that tourists want, they want to come and eat tapas. And inherently, when you don't know a place, you don't know a destination, You, it's, it's normal that you don't understand all the um, local regional differences and things like that you know i'm going to italy i want to eat pizza and pasta well the food in florence is different from the food in rome is different from the food in naples and and i think that people think tapas is one thing all over spain and it's just small little dishes that should be free and even i get comments on my youtube channel with spaniards saying uh that's not you know i'll call a video a tapas crawl Uh, and they'll say that's not tapas because the best tapas are in Granada where they're all free and they're huge. And I disagree with that. Tapas is effectively kind of the definition that I said previously. But, you know, whether it's free, whether it's not, whether it's big, whether it's small is beside the point. Those are details and those are regional details. So you go to Barcelona, you, tapas are not native to Barcelona. The, you know, the, if you were in Barcelona 30 years ago, 40 years ago, there's no such thing as tapas. Um, it's not native to the Catalan culture. Uh, it was brought from Andalusian immigrants moving to moving to that part in the mid 20th century and moving to Catalonia uh, because they needed work. So if you go down south in Spain, as you say in Seville, you can order on a menu a tapas-sized portion. Often in Madrid, you can't order that tapas-sized portion, but in Seville, you won't get it for free. You won't get anything for free. In Madrid, you might get a little morsel for free, and in Granada, you'll get a lot for free. So, and then in the Basque country in the north, they have pinchos, which is just the local name for tapas, and some of them you can grab off the bar. So it really varies, and I think that's a little overwhelming for people, and I understand. You're like, I'm gonna go to Spain eat tapas, but each city you arrive at, (laughs) somehow you're like, if you try and do tapas like you did in the previous city, you're breaking all the rules, and people are gonna look at you funny. Um, And that's just the that's just the wonderful complexity of Spain. You know, there's not, not a lot you can do about that. I mean, you can read our blogs on Devour and my videos and hopefully that'll help a little bit. But there's no kind of
0: there's no shortcut to understanding that stuff. It's funny you mentioned about the regions, my Spanish when I'm in Barcelona and I do know French, so it seems to work a lot better than when I got to Seville where nobody understood me anymore. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'd have
1: to hear your accent. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe they're maybe they're more used to tur- well, they're used to tourists in Seville. I, I don't know what that is. Maybe uh, if people s- maybe speak a little more English in Catalonia uh, potentially, and so that you know maybe they could understand a little bit a bit better. But yeah, I mean, it's a wonderfully regional country, and that's the richness. It's so interesting that the regionality of Spain is what causes so much tension within Spain, and I just wish. Everybody in this country, as many do, would realize that, you know, the regionality is the richness uh, and not actually something that detracts.
0: It takes forever to tour Spain. I've had to do it in two trips and I still haven't covered what I want to cover. Well, yeah, well, of course. I mean, I guess and, and,
1: and I guess that is that regionality. I wonder if people It'd be interesting to do a survey and see if people have a similar experience with Italy or with France. Uh, you know, I mean, again, very regional countries. I wonder if it's more marked in Spain, at least in people's minds. And so uh, it's true that if you go to Cadiz, or if you go to Asturias, or if you go to Catalonia, or if you go to Madrid, I mean, they're very different experiences. And so um, I'm sure you could probably do more trips, Matt, and and still keep discovering.
0: You've collaborated with Lauren and started a company that is really solving a problem for people who wanna have a good dining experience, but because there's so many tourist traps out there. So if I'm going to Spain, What do I need to look out for in terms of a tourist trap? What is a a definite tourist trap to your eye? I think generally
1: it is a tough question because a lot of people say, oh, well, if there's uh, uh, pictures of the food, then it's a tourist trap. Or if there's a tout outside, it's a tourist trap. And it's a little more subtle than that. I know some great places that are family run, really rustic, and they have pictures of the food outside because they think that that's what they're supposed to do to attract tourists. And of course they want tourists to come in because they need to pay the bills. And so they want to kind of be a part of that. Um, So I think you have to look at it a little more globally. If you go to a place and it's got pictures in the menu in 12 languages, there's a tout outside and you're standing in the main square, Yes, you're probably in a tourist trap. So I think you have to have a combination of these things, but just one of them does not mean it's a tourist trap. I also think it's interesting about the use of that word tourist trap. What does that actually mean? Uh, I think it's maybe narrower than what people, or or it's a little different from what people think. Uh, Some people might think a tourist trap is a place where tourists are, but no, some of my favorite bars in Madrid have tourism because they're great bars. And in this day and age with TripAdvisor and I'm on Instagram and people will see where I am. Of course, you're going to go there. Uh, A tourist trap for me is a place that doesn't care about the it doesn't love the food and the quality of the food and is only really there to trap tourists. And there are places that are full of, you know, multiple language menus and, and photos, and they're not there to trap tourists. They just want to facilitate what they think the tourists want to see. And they think that will help people come in. They don't realize that there's a category of tourists that actually be pushed away by that. But because they're experts in, in doing sweetbreads and not in marketing, so they don't really understand maybe that that kind of subtlety of it. Uh, so I think, yeah, you don't want to eat in the Plaza Mayor in Madrid. Those are tourist traps uh, because you know they are literally there to feed, you know, locals don't eat there. But uh, I don't think there's a lot of tourist traps in
0: Madrid, to be honest. I think you can get off the beaten path pretty quickly. It's funny you mentioned about the Plaza Mayor because I did have a paella there and it was made, oh, uh, f- it was made fresh and it turned out to be fantastic. But I think the key, oh, that's great. Was, yeah, the key was asking for it to, to be fresh and it was a, it was also a Sunday and things were slow. Yeah.
1: I mean, if they made it fresh for you then they probably always made it fresh because if they didn't make it fresh, if it was a pre-frozen one, then that would be the only one they were capable of doing. They wouldn't sort of go and rustle up a fresh paella for you, but that's, that's amazing. And, I don't think there's a, I, you know, I can't speak to other other countries as well, but I don't think Spain has that many places that are just pure tourist traps because I think often those kind of places just die out because they're going to get crappy reviews on TripAdvisor. And yeah, most of the places are on Plaza Mayor. You're not going to get great food, but the fact that you had a great paella on Plata Mayor in Madrid just speaks to the fact that you can get great food all over this country.
0: Yeah, I find a lot of it can be. It's not. I don't want to use the term hit and miss. But there's lots of abilities to discover great things. And I think that's one of the things why I keep coming back to your videos is because you're discovering new places for me all the time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and that's really the idea. Me, As I discover, I want to share that with people. And I want to support those places that are doing things uh, well. And, you know, I want tourists to go there because they – a lot of these places, they will uh, survive on that as well, as as well as the, the local uh, market is, you know, that's really also really important. But, uh, I, you know, just people say sometimes, you know, when these cliches, like if you want to eat good food, to, you know, ask your taxi driver. I would not ask a taxi driver in Madrid where to eat. I, I you know, it would be very hit and miss. And so just because somewhere is authentic does not mean the food is good. And just because something's somewhere is a tourist trap does not mean the food is bad. So I think you have to be a little bit more um, nuanced in the way you think about it. Of course, if you're in a tourist trap and you're surrounded by tourists, the experience is going to be kind of, the ambiance is going to be different. So I've had bad food in great places, if you know what I mean, because it's just like, oh my God, this place is crazy. I love it. Food's kind of, or it's, or it's average, but that's okay. You know, the wine's okay, the food's okay, but I'm kind of just loving being here. So I think we have to be a little more, as I say, nuanced in how we think about kind of tourist traps, good places, bad places.
0: Let's go for a little tour. You're in Madrid right now. This is home for you. Tell us a little bit about the videos you've done, including the one on Cava Baja and your neighborhood in Madrid. Yeah, the, the Cava Baja is a street that
1: has become known as, as like a, the Golden Mile of Tapas a little bit. Uh, it is a street here in the center of Madrid, in the, in the historic center, that, that curves around. It has this great curvature to it because effectively it tracked Uh, where the medieval city walls were, and I think it was the 14th century. And so Kava Bacha means kind of like lower lower cave, lower cellar, Uh, it's effectively the, the ditch that was on the outside of the medieval wall. And it was a place where people used to stay when you, it's the city limits. So when you arrive at the city limits, you get all the dodgy motels. And the dodgy motels back in the day uh, along the street were called posadas. And a posada is effectively a place like an inn, like a traveler's inn. And so now when you walk along that street, that idea that it has converted inns that have turned into tapas bars and there's still some hotels and other tapas bars kind of reflects that history. And so literally you could walk the street for 10 minutes, but every place, pretty much every place is a is a tapas bar. Uh, and it's just a great fun place to to go and eat. uh, I made a video. I'd stop, you know, when you're a local and there's certain areas you think, oh, I'm not gonna go back to Kavabaha, it's sort of touristy or it's just an obvious choice. And I hadn't been there for a while. And I said to Yoli, my wife, I said, well, let's make a video of that. Um, And so we started making a video of this, of kind of crawling along and picking the best bars. And I really loved it. And I just realized, God, we should come back here more often. There's so many great places to eat on that street. But of course, with 40, 50 bars or maybe more, there's only going to be seven or eight that are knockout places. So that's what I wanted to feature in the in the in the video. And in the videos, I always and I think that's been a popular one because people can kind of copy it. They can replicate it. They can go from bar to bar. I think the the, the business got the most business out of it is the first one, because if you were number seven on that thing, probably most people didn't make the seventh place. I don't know about you, but.
0: <laughs> So we loved Baja in Madrid. And the wine bar we fell in love with is called Taberna Tempraneo, and James featured it in the video he was just talking about. One of the bars that wasn't featured in his video, but Avery and I really liked a lot is called Lamiuk, which has a bit of a Basque feel to the dishes. It was so nice, we did it twice. Thinking back, we only spent three nights in Madrid. So that recently prompted a couch question. You're okay if we go to Madrid and not Barcelona next time, right?
2: I actually think I requested Madrid.
0: Good, good. Keeps the relationship strong? If you say so. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the neighborhood you live in. Do you live in uh, Retiero? No,
1: I used to live in I used to wow, well, I used to live a little closer to there. I live in Delicias, which well, is pretty close actually. Uh, it's a it's about fifteen minutes uh, south from Retiro, which is around where the, where the park is. I did make a tapas crawl video in the Retiro neighborhood, the sort of Ibiza Retiro neighborhood, which has some amazing places to eat. But I'm, I'm just a little south there. I'm about 10 minutes from the center by the metro. And yeah, this neighborhood Delicias, we actually recently bought a house, um, but then lockdown happened when the, the, the renovation started. So we don't know when we can move into that. But for the moment, this is a great, I mean, this is a great neighborhood to live in. And, you know, I've done a tapas crawl video for this neighborhood and it's much more local, but the, some of the bartenders have told me people have come out. Here and I mean, it's 10 minutes on the metro, but I think 10 minutes on the metro can sound like 400 miles when you're a tourist in a a city. It sounds like, oh my god, I'm not going out that far. But there's some great local places in this neighborhood, and it's just a normal Madrid neighborhood, uh, you know, for good and bad. Uh, I'd love to live in right smack in the historic center, but obviously, getting a a decent size apartment in that part of Madrid is very, very expensive now.
0: I want to tell you about one of the great victories that I had one night, and I was watching one of your videos, and Uh, You know Avery's asleep But the video's going And there you are, you walk into a a restaurant That I absolutely adored called Juana La Loca And you Mm, were talking about the tortilla But she and I had had A birthday meal there uh, a few years ago And I thought it was just one of the best Restaurants I'd ever been to So I've got that one in my sort of like my top Three that I recommend to people to go to And the worst part is I didn't even know the tortilla Was was off the hook because I would have Ordered that too
1: yeah, it's really good there.
0: I've only ever sat, sat down in that place once or really
1: had kind of a meal there. Uh, it's always just so busy, <laughs> I can never get in. I, ne- I never wanna go there because I feel like I'm gonna struggle to, to to kind of squeeze in, which as much as I love squeezing into little tapas bars, it's, it's, maybe it has sort of an awkward space, it's very narrow or something like that. But yeah, their tortilla is very, very good. Uh, it's very caramelized and and it has, a lo- it has a lot of complexity in it, which is saying a lot for a dish that has about four ingredients.
0: Oh, I went to the restaurant and then they sent me away for about 45 minutes to an hour, so I went across the street to have a drink and then came back and then uh, we were eating you know, fairly late, but it was quite, quite a wonderful experience. Yeah, that, it is a good restaurant. I, had, I remember when I did go there some years ago now I
1: really, really enjoyed the food.
0: How do we navigate markets in Barcelona and Madrid, and I guess in any you know populous city in Spain, how do we approach the markets and what's good and what's bad? I think the first thing people need to realize is there's markets and there's markets, uh,
1: like all all over the world. The word market has been co-opted to effectively reflect a sort of a food hall that might have a few different market e-stalls, but a lot of the places are just serving food. So if you think about Madrid, there's the Mercado San Miguel or the uh, San Miguel market. Is not a market. It's a it's a kind of gourmet tapas hall, which is not to besmirch it in any way. It's just that's that's what it is. So I think first you have to know are you going to a traditional market or not? Um, in the Boqueria in Barcelona is a traditional market. Traditional markets in Spain, though, do have bars in them. So you, you can't eat in a traditional market. So I think you have to just figure out, uh, first of all, are you going to a, a market or a gourmet food hall? Uh, and if you want to go to a traditional market, then You know, these places are, are complex, they have a lot of rules, but the first thing is just walk through. There will always be a bar, a place you can grab a beer because that's where a lot of the people working in the market will possibly have their lunch. And I think that you just have to be a little bit brave. And if you see like the olive vendor, or if you see, you know, if you see somebody selling something that you want to, you want to try, you want to buy some fruit, you just have to go in and point. And, you know, nobody's going to laugh at you because you can't speak Spanish. I put a video up on my channel, actually, of how to explore a traditional market, which kind of contextualized it for people because, but yeah, they're not set up for tourists. So, so you're going to have to kind of chance your arm a little bit, I think. Try your Spanish. My experience is that the Spanish is always better after the second or third drink. Oh, yeah, totally. I think any language, any language, apart, apart from the person, you're, for the person you're talking to. But, uh, but, uh, but I think, yeah, we all, we all know that experience. We get a little, get a little bit of Dutch courage and in our, in our language, foreign language skills increase exponentially.
0: I want to thank you for a couple of the suggestions that you had in, in Barcelona. And one of the cutest and most fun little spots down in the Goth area was uh, Bar La Plata. Mm. which you had an experience with because you went to go film there, but it was closed, but then you had to come back the next night. In fact, I believe you had to use some time travel to get to the bar.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was a uh, – people quote that. I've met people um, traveling around Spain, and I'll, sort of, people will recognize me, and they will they seem to enjoy that time travel moment when I had to get into the bar, which was closed. I'll let people discover that video and discover it for themselves, but uh, that is a great place. They only have, what is it, four – uh, depends if you, how you want your anchovies. They, ha, they only have five tapas, uh, and that's the entire menu. Shows you the simplicity of, of how how complex and simple Spanish cuisine can be. Um, yeah, such a tiny place, but such a wonderful place. And run by a great guy called Pepe. And I hope, I hope after all of this kind of lockdown and corona, I hope those little places survive because they're the, the beating heart of, of, of this country.
0: I think one little piece of advice that I've discovered in some of these popular places is that The tables do turn over, people do leave, and you just need to muscle your way into a space to enjoy your drink and your tapa.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's true. I think when you come with certain preconceived notions of what a restaurant is like, because you come from the States, you come from New Zealand or Australia, you think that it's going to be like back home where you have to wait for a table. And, you know, once people sit down, they're going to be eating for an hour and a half or something like that. And it's nothing like that. It's very fluid. So a tapas bar will you know, it'll get busy, it'll get quiet in, in waves. So you might go into a tapas bar and it's and it's just so packed, you can't move, and then 15 minutes later, it could be empty. And then 15 minutes later after that, it's packed again. And it's because so often, even if people are only eating there, they generally don't linger that long. Um, of course, there are tapas bars that have a restaurant or dining room area to them, where people will sit down and have a, have a longer meal. But certainly in the more bar area of these places, it's very, very fluid. And that's, that's kind of like the fun, I often say, going out for tapas or walking to a busy tapas bar is is kind of like stepping into a fast-flowing river. And it's at the beginning, it's frightening. But once you can kind of ride
0: the rapids, it's very exhilarating. Okay, so Avery's got a question she's been dying to ask.
2: If you had to choose one specific region where you would recommend is the absolute don't miss it, have to go. All areas of Spain, I know we have to be at. But if you had to pick, somebody was forcing you, what is that? one area that you'd say is the is your absolute favorite?
1: I love Cardiff uh, down the south or Cadiz San English uh, in the south. Uh, I was get my east and west southwest uh, of the country. It's just a fascinating part of Spain. The food is incredible. It is uh, a very beautiful part of the country. Uh, just there on the Atlantic, uh, the the, the Cardiff kind of capital, Cardiff city, is just whitewashed and and full of mystery and and a little bit run down. Uh, and yet the food is wonderful. The people are wonderful. It's a great place for flamenco. It's it's on the, it's on the sea, and there's these medieval, well, a little later than medieval, but probably sixteenth, seventeenth century forts that circle the. That that run along the that jut out from the from the from the city into the into the ocean. It's just a wonderful part of part of Spain, full of kind of magic. So, I'm going to pick that one. Ask me next week, and I'll pick another one. But this week, I'm saying I'm saying Cadiz.
0: I want to talk a little bit about a place not too far from there, and that's uh, Seville. Mm. One of the things you pointed out in a recent video is that there's there's other parts to it than just the Santa Cruz area, and that's uh, Triano. And mm-hmm. I I didn't even really know about it, and I've been to Seville, and now I have to go back.
1: Yeah, that's a great just over the just over the river uh Triana is a is a is a really local neighborhood. You know, the trianeros, the the locals there kind of say that almost think call themselves uh, or or refer to themselves as living in a different city from Seville. There's a real kind of local pride and it's again always been the other side of the river and and I think just literally being the other side of the river means that a place kind of develops with its own identity. Back in the day, there obviously wasn't as many bridges as there are now. Uh, it was an area where there was a large gypsy population, famous for its sort of flamenco dancers and bullfighters. Uh, back in the day, every young boy, instead of wanting to be a football player, wanted to be a bullfighter. That was your ticket out. And also really wonderful area for ceramics, uh, the, the banks of the Guadalquivir River. Uh, are an area that over over centuries have been, you know, clay has been has been dredged up to, to make uh, pottery and, and, and beautiful ceramics. So it's just a really fascinating part um, of the city. So I have a video of a tapas crawl through that part as well. So <laughs> You can use that when you head there next.
0: Oh, no, it's all been marked down. And I, I put each bar I put into my, my maps with a star, and then I sort of have to create my own tapas crawl. Oh, very good.
1: Yeah, that's that's the way to do it, which actually and I realized that just before just before the whole coronavirus thing hit, I actually had been working for the last six months on a guide to Madrid, um, which was a chance to list out all these places because I'd I'd met people on tours and they've been kind of compiling, dredging through the videos, trying to come up with a list. And I was like, well, I'll make the list. And so so I put one of those out
0: um, to hopefully make it a little bit easier for people. Let's go polar opposite of the country. uh, San Sebastian. And mm. you, you did a video in the Old Town, but you've recently done, well, a few more videos, actually. One that was really focusing on the bars in, in the downtown part.
1: Yeah, yeah, The what they call the centro, the center neighborhood, which is uh, an area where we actually devour, uh, we started offering, offering a tour uh, last year because the historic center of san sebastian is beautiful the food is wonderful we have a tour there uh, a pincho tour but one of the challenges is particularly in the high season it is overwhelmed with tourists and you know for two reasons we wanted to be able to offer an experience that was outside of that area as well one because uh, there's some guests who didn't enjoy that experience of there being so many people. And two, because I think we have a responsibility as a tourism company to try and spread the tourist dollar as much as possible. And you know, there's some great bars that are outside that historic center. And so if we can bring some of our guests to those places and help those support those bars, but also give our guests a great experience of being kind of outside the area where a lot of the tourists are, it's win-win for everyone. So so I recently made a video of some of the places that we visit. And I mean, the food is fantastic. And again, you're certainly not in tourist traps, not that there's many tourist traps in San Sebastian. But once you get out of that historic center, it's, you know, it's all locals.
0: I think one of the things I started to do was we would target an entire neighborhood for for tapas bars uh, and then create the crawl sort of out of that. So you get a different feel for for each part. Exactly. I have to re-strategize most of this because every time you put out a new video, I've got to book a new trip to Spain. (laughs) How many times have you been? Been twice. The third was supposed to be happening around now. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I can imagine for a lot of people exactly the same. But
0: uh, yeah, we'll be back hopefully is there any chance you're going to film anything in, in Granada?
1: A lot of people have asked for that. Granada and Valencia are areas that people would like me to film, and I just haven't had trips planned there. Um, obviously, I have. I'm busy with Devour, and so it's hard to find the time when I can travel and when Yoli, my wife, can travel who films the videos. But yeah, I mean, I have plans to film videos all over this country. It's
0: just a, it's just a time question, and Granada would be amazing. Is is travel to Granada? Was it hampered by the fact that there wasn't a, a train that went there? Yeah, I'm just trying to think. Last time I was there, which was I think about 18 months ago, you had to get
1: off and was it? You had to get off and, and enter, get- get and, and then take the bus. Exactly, which was because they were they were fixing the tracks. And I don't know if it's still like that. Maybe it is. Um, it rings a bell. I don't know when you, were, when you were on that. I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, when you're coming to Spain, you want to go to Granada, you want to see the Alhambra. So, you, you know, yeah, OK, it's a bit of a pain in the ass. I got to get off and get on a bus, but whatever. I'm not sure if it hurts tourism because the draw of what is in Granada is so strong. But obviously, it would be great if they could connect that uh, as soon as possible same with the north of spain with galicia Astur- Asturias, uh since you know uh, bus country
0: the the more quickly everything can be connected with fast train uh, the better okay so here's the deal with the train to granada in 2018 when avery and i went it was closed because of construction so the train took you halfway there and then they finished the trip by bus The tracks have now been upgraded and there's now high-speed train travel with three trains a day from Madrid to Granada. It's going to take you 3 hours and 15 minutes and you'll be traveling at 300 km per hour and loving it. The audio you hear in the background? I recorded that back in 2018 on the train after we'd traveled by bus and were headed to Madrid after a wonderful stay in Granada. You can also take the train from Barcelona to Granada, but that's not a high-speed train and it's going to take you a little more than six hours. A severe word of warning about Renfee. They're the people who operate the trains. The website's a disaster. Don't even try to book a train on your phone. Get it done in advance. Trust me. As for the experience on the train, you'll wonder why we don't have it in North America. Damn, it's good. You may also like Supports Podcasting 2.0. So feel free to send us a boost
2: if you're listening on a newer podcast app. If you don't have one, you can see the full list of them at newpodcastapps.com. I
0: want to do some short snappers. I mean, these are smaller places in Spain that I have not been to, or maybe actually one or two I have. But can you summarize each of these places and maybe you know we add it to our itinerary if we go? And the first spot I want to talk about is Cordoba.
1: Mm, wow i love that city it is again I, I use the word magical a lot i think often what i like about uh, cadiz or cordova is that they're not that they're off the beaten path my god not cordova but it's not it's not seville it's not barcelona these these cities that are just they're still visited but a little bit less and uh and cordova is just this magical city that was once the heart Of Muslim ruled Spain that has this mosque in the middle of it, which is just the most astounding building that has a cathedral in the middle of the mosque. Uh, And then also, when you start to wander in Cordoba, the whitewashed walls, it just, it just, uh, you get lost in it, and and it's just so magic. And then you'll stumble across this kind of square, and there'll be nobody in it, and there'll be these, uh, you know, beautiful balconies with with coloured flower pots and geraniums spilling out, and it's just a place of so much colour and light. Uh, you've got the river running through it with the Roman bridge. It's a Roman bridge that is still in use, you know, connecting both sides of the river. So it's just a magical place. But the mosque, uh, the mezquita is, is really the, the, the main draw there, but not, but not, it's not what it's all about. You know, there's so much, so much more to discover. The food is great as well.
0: What about Toledo?
1: Toledo is a funny one. I never really cracked. People often would ask me on tours in Madrid, they'd be in Madrid and they want to do a day trip. And they'd be like, should I go to Segovia or Toledo? And Toledo is to the south, Segovia is to the north. And they're kind of like the two day trip uh, options. And people often choose one. And I I had always had better experiences in Segovia, partly because I'd had friends who lived there. So I'd had more time to explore it with a local. Whereas Toledo, I'd felt like the couple of times I'd been there, uh, I'd been a little bit lost, a little bit overwhelmed. Never had great food, and so it was really always Segovia was my was my place. But re- well, not recently. God, it was about three years ago. Now uh, we did, as a company, Devour. We did a trip to Toledo with the team, and we hired a local guide who also happened to be a local. Well, happened to be he's also a local archaeologist, and he just uncovered that place for us. He just really cracked it open, took us into the most magical churches that were once mosques and this and that, and, you know, took us behind closed doors. We we even were able to add on to the, the tour, a visit to one of Spain's most uh, extensive wine cellars that's in the old caverns beneath a restaurant. So, you know, Toledo has the most fascinating history, but I think it can be a little overwhelming if you don't have a guide because it gets a lot of tourists, it gets very hot, and you could just feel like you're walking up and down hills all day. Malaga. Malaga is amazing, Malaga is amazing. It is that eggshell blue sea, Uh, the climate is incredible. I think it has more days of sunshine than any other city in Europe. And the food in Malaga is some of the best in the country. Uh, the Just the tapas bars, it's just phenomenal. There's the market there, which is, you know, you just see mountains of of almonds and, and raisins and fish and, and everything. It looks like a market from 500 years ago, and it's so colorful and everybody's so friendly. And so Malaga is just magical. And if you go to Malaga, my favorite tapas bar is called um, Meson Mariano. Meson Mariano. He's famous for his artichokes, but everything he does is amazing. Legrono. Yeah, in the heart of uh, La Rioja, Logroño is a is a city I've been to a couple times, and it's got a very famous tapa street called Calle Laurel, which is. Generally packed with people. I'm often not a big fan of of the famous Tapa streets because they can be a little bit overwhelming. Uh, there are some good places to eat on that street, and it is fun to to walk to kind of go along it and and drink Rioja. And every every place has its uh, has its uh, you know three or four uh, different different types of uh, Rioja wine on tap. But I think you know what I love about Kind of cities like that is just that they're so focused around one thing. So they're focused about around wine and around the wine of that region. So you know you can stumble into a corner bar and they're going to have three three different types of on tap, but not on tap by the bottle. But you know normally you would only get only get one of those. It's a little like some people said to me, you know you go to Champagne. I've never been to Champagne in the region. And in the in the in the kind of corner bar, they're drinking champagne because it's just the local wine, right? They're not drinking, you know, the Dom Perignon, but uh, but the the builder is drinking is drinking sparkling wine, and I think it's great when you go to wine regions and see wine in its context. Bilbao, Bilbao, I was at uh, a year or so ago for a. For a festival, and I was there on my own. And generally, when I've visited cities on my own, <laughs> it's not—I don't have—not that I don't have the best memories, but they, they don't stand out as much. It was raining. It was the only time I've been there. But there is one square I can't remember what's called, but um, I had some great food there as well. Uh, some people say that if you're really into food, then Bilbao is like the true place to eat great Basque food. But yeah, I was there, and it was great. It's—it's it's a more—it's a more kind of industrial-looking town. But people who love it swear by it. And uh, yeah, and there's the Guggenheim there, of course, as well. Should I take a pill in Ibiza? Uh, oh, I don't know. It depends if you take a pill back home. Uh, I wouldn't, <laughs> but uh, I don't know what uh, I, I wouldn't know what was in it. Those those days are long gone. I've never been to uh, Ibiza. So uh, if I think if I was planning to go, I would go shoulder season probably when it would be hard to find someone who could sell you pills or maybe even easier. I'm not quite sure. Uh, But I would go shoulder season and I would uh, try and have a quieter experience. So I would suggest Ibiza, but I would suggest trying to visit in a way that that isn't about um, going to those those clubs. But, Matt, that
0: depends on, uh, you know, what floats your boat, I guess. I'm too old for that stuff. (laughs) I'm sure you're not. How's Devour Tours coping with the pandemic? Your business is based, based off tourism and people traveling, and, and Spain's an incredibly social country. And and this entire pandemic is really sort of runs against the grain of, of what you do.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's been tough. It's been really, really tough. Uh, largely because obviously we've had to suspend our tours. And so and we don't have clarity on when those are going to be possible again. Now, obviously, we can we can project and we can say by, you know, by August, by September, we'll be we'll be up and running. But it's just an unknown. And so it's been shattering, really. Uh, we've had to lay people off. We have a very small staff currently working part time. Uh, there were some people on the team who didn't have unemployment benefit cover just because of how long they have been working and things like that. And so we kept them on uh, part-time at least for a couple months so that they can pay their rent. Nobody can look for a job right now, obviously. They can't leave their house. So we've had to lay people off and put people onto part-time, obviously with the view to it being temporary and that people can come back, but we just don't know what the future holds. So no tours, no income, massive amount of refunds it's it is what it is it sucks and and any tourism company is in the same boat right now I believe we can get through with we are being proactive around it uh, and so we're working in two different areas we've just before effectively the team was furloughed, we put together uh, with recipes from the team from the guides from from vendors we put together a, a digital recipe book uh, which we have started selling which is a, an amazing way to support devour uh, and it's full of recipes from the different cities throughout throughout Europe that we that we operate and it's, it's incredible and it was put together so quickly by just everyone pitching in and, and, and getting together. Uh, And we do have, uh, currently have free live experiences every evening, uh, Europe time on Facebook. And so anything from learn how to cook pasta to, uh, you know, other like cheese, French cheese kind of workshops. Uh, And then we're also looking at launching soon some online paid experiences. So, you know, the initial two, three weeks was just trying to protect the team trying to protect the team and whatever shape that took for each different person. And now it's looking forward and seeing, well, you know, how can we earn some money so that we can kind of keep the lights on even in a very reduced capacity to come through this to the other side? But the other side will be different. You know, I think that companies that are proactive right now who create things and try new things, they will they will still be operating some of those things when walking around the city tours come back. So I think the, the, the online space is going to be interesting.
0: Tell me a little bit about the YouTube audience that you have, because people stop you in the street and they're like, "I know you, and I watch your videos, and I'm here." I mean, that must be an incredible feeling. Yeah,
1: I remember when it started happening, and it's 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 a weird
0: feeling because you're like, "Who me?" You you know,
1: I mean, yeah, okay, you saw me on YouTube, but I guess as someone who's 41, I didn't grow up with YouTube, and I you know, the people who are quote unquote famous were people on TV or in the movies. And so the, the-, the thought that somebody might be excited to meet me, I still don't quite understand. Um, but it- it's nice. It's nice because you see people who are having a great experience because they've been able to watch these videos and go to places they might not have discovered otherwise. So it's very gratifying. Uh, but yeah, the the notion of people saying, oh my God, I can't believe I met you. I'm like, who me?
0: <laughs> Is there someone behind me you're talking to? Well, I think people get excited because they, they watch the videos all the time. They're They're Sort of thinking about their trip to Spain, about those two weeks maybe, or the one week they're going to be spending. And they, they you know, your videos help people to look forward to these great trips. So it's kind of exciting to see you.
1: Yeah, I, no, I can understand that. It is true that I think a, a part of what makes a video more powerful than reading The Lonely Planet in some ways is that, you know, people read guidebooks as part of the planning and part of the planning is about the anticipation, the excitement, but obviously seeing something in a video form is more visceral. And, and if you're going to kind of be getting excited about your trip, then yeah, video is, is going to serve that need a little bit, or maybe than the written word in some ways.
0: Do you think it's possible that you would be able to do beef cheek at some point in your home videos? I would
1: love to. Yeah. I've been keeping them pretty simple so far. Uh, And and it has been really gratifying to start making cooking videos. I'm not a great cook, but I love to cook, and so to kind of be learning while people watch me learn on YouTube, I find I enjoy. Uh, And beef cheek is obviously something that requires a little bit more time and blah blah blah. So I've kept it simple at the moment, but I would love to get into those kind of more complex or certainly stew based recipes in the future. So I'll do that one for you, Matt.
0: You could do that one, and in fact, if you do have a good Spanish stew. Something traditional. I would love that because I'm all about making stews, being in Canada, where it's winter like nine months of the year.
1: That's a great idea. The Cocido Madrileño
0: would be a great one to do, which is the local Madrid stew. And I have some friends
1: who make a good one. Yoli's made them before. And it's delicious. It's all these different meats and vegetables that are thrown together. It's based on a Jewish dish that was something that uh, Jewish Spaniards would cook in the Middle Ages and because on the Sabbath they couldn't do anything, you would leave it slow cooking on the embers on Friday night and then have it for lunch, dinner on Saturday. And this dish uh, still exists. Now it has pork in it. That was something that was an addition uh, by the Christians, but it is wonderful. And what I love about it, it's served with pickled peppers which is amazing because you've got this kind of big meaty fatty unctuous stew and then you're eating it and balancing it out with this little plate of pickled peppers that just have the perfect acidity and sharpness just to cut right through all of that and kind of kind of give your palate a spritz and obviously you'd have it with a big bottle of something you know red and strong
0: i can't remember if i saw it in your video or from somewhere else that Jewish people actually were the ones they would put the pork into the dish to prove that they had abandoned their religion.
1: Yeah, I always used to think those stories were kind of BS because always those things are kind of like sound fairy tale like. But I believe there is truth to it uh, that the Spanish Inquisition one of the ways that it would check obviously that you had you were not uh, that you had converted to Catholicism was to tempt you with pork and see if you would eat it or not. And they do say that the the prevalence of pork in our diet is is from that time although pigs are easy animals to raise so we were eating a lot of pork before that i'm sure Uh, but also particularly in parts of spain where there may not be a a lot of pasture land that that you could graze cows on for instance but you know even the idea of hanging hams and bars and things like that supposedly is connected to that idea that back in the day if you wanted to make sure your neighbors weren't going to rat on you and say oh i think he might be a crypto crypto Jew or something like that, you would hang a big pork leg in your window to show that, no, I am not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, practicing Judaism. So I think there is something in that, which is really fascinating.
0: If there was ever one way that a vegetarian should give up being a vegetarian, I think the answer is Hamon, Iberica. I agree. I
1: agree. I mean, I I have vegetarian friends that eat because they, particularly acorn fed stuff, because they say, well, it's 100% acorn, so it's practically veg- vegetarian anyway. So you can always use that excuse. But look, I eat less meat these days. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I still eat meat. And if you're going to eat meat, make sure it's good meat. And jamoniverico, the bellota, acorn fed black hoof pig, is just it's a phenomenal flavor. It just has so much complexity. Um, and yeah, I think we have some in the fridge, actually. You've kind of. We don't usually have some, but I think I think Yoli went out to the supermarket today, and I think she actually might have picked some up. I
0: I, I saw it there um, earlier, so maybe that's on the menu tonight. If I just arrived in Madrid, and you wanted to give me the quickest crash course to wine, what can you tell me?
1: Oof, wow. Well, I would take you to one of my favorite wine bars, which is a a, a place called La Fisna, F I S N A, in the Lavapiés neighborhood. I'd probably start by taking you through from sparkling through the whites and then into the reds, and I would take you through a couple of different regions of each one, uh, and I would introduce you to kind of the the kind of the main types of wine, the flavor profiles, but I would also want to help—this is what's, I think, important for people are traveling to Spain—help people understand how to drink wine in Spain, uh, because, you know, just make sure people know that we don't order by the grape, we order by the region, that if you go into a restaurant or if you go into a corner tapas bar, they're usually going to have pretty average wine by the glass. Uh, and if you want to get into the good stuff, you're actually going to have to get into the into the bottles. Um, and so I think I would help people contextualize wine a little bit. I think there's, uh, there's kind of a, a theory or a th- thought process that if you're in Europe, you can sort of stumble into the corner bar and they're going to have great wine because it's Europe and everyone drinks wine. Whereas actually more people drink beer here than wine these days. And if you just stumble into the corner bar and you order a glass of wine, it could be, it could be average and it could be, it could be off so, <laughs> because maybe if you pick the wrong one, not many people have been drinking it. So I would kind of give people uh, the kind of the real deal. And that's what we're always trying to do on the YouTube channel is kind of, you know, Spain is wonderful enough. We don't need to dress it up. So I'm gonna try and give people the kind of the real deal of like, yeah, you know, the wine might be average in most places. If you want to get to the good stuff, you have to order a bottle. And there's also But there are a lot of great wine bars where you can get great wine by the glass, of course.
0: There are some regional drinks too. So for instance, down in Andalusia, there's there's Sherry. Yes, Sherry. Sherry, which is always,
1: you know, people's memories of sherry are grandma at Christmas and very sweet. And most sherry that we drink is dry, bone dry. It's not sweet at all. And so, sherry is a hard one for people. We serve sherry on some of our tapas and wine tours. And I think it's always really interesting to help people, for people to try it. A lot of people still don't love it after trying it for the first time. It's It's a very complex wine that, can be a little rough or rough tasting at first, or a little uh, jarring. Uh, but once you kind of fall for it, you really fall in love with it. And I think the best way to fall in love with sherry is actually to drink it in Andalusia, in in Cadiz or in Seville, or you know, or in Jerez, in in sherry country, uh, where the wine is from, and in Southwest Spain. And then you kind of see it in its context, and I think that's the way to fall in love with it.
0: And there's also Ticoli, which is uh, up in San Sebastian, which I know you were just there not too long ago, and you were nursing a whole bottle through lunch. Oh, it's so good! Ticole is amazing. It's it's. It, I always say it's like
1: you know, it hasn't got as much alcohol. In the end, it probably does. It's got eleven, eleven or twelve percent. But um, it's it's a it's a local wine in the Basque country. It's a white wine. It's it has a, a little bit of kind of because of its youth, a little touch of effervescence to it. And you pour it from a height to aerate it a little bit and man it's good it's just the perfect thing to it just tastes like joy you know it's it's you're you're in a pincho bar in san sebastian and you've got the Chakwali and you're just drinking it and it's not heavy and it's light and the, the the lunch is just starting it's just such an exciting moment i think it's almost like the aperitif moment it's so exciting
0: well, one of the things you did was you did a three-hour walk over to a, a town on the other side of San Sebastian. And once again, you've done it to me. You've pointed out something that I missed on my last trip to San Sebastian.
1: You have to do that. I mean, that walk from San Sebastian, uh, particularly in the summer, we did it in February, and it was a little rainy. It was still beautiful. It is it is magical. Yeah, you walk for two and a half, three hours from San Sebastian to uh, a, a kind of a town called, well, there's two towns on either side of the river, San Pedro and San Juan, And man, we went to the you would have seen in the video, the most incredible fish restaurant where we had grilled was it grilled was like roasted or or baked monkfish. My God, it was amazing. Uh, And you get in this little boat to go across uh, just a great little day trip. And then I actually have to a lot of people have asked me in the YouTube comments how they get back. Did you walk back? No, we didn't. There was a bus. So I need to update the YouTube description to make that clear to people because, yeah, that would be a long day if you had to walk
0: back again. That was going to be my next question. Like, how did you get back?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know, and a lot of, and I keep meaning to update the description to to clarify that I probably should have put something in the video, but i forgot and too late now. Uh, but I will put it in that you got to get the number seven bus back to San
0: Sebastian, and it's about you know twenty minutes on the bus, so so you don't have to walk back. Don't worry, Matt. Okay, so our quarantine drink of choice is, is vermouth, and mm. vermouth can be a little bit confusing because you you know you think of martini and you think of some of the stuff that comes from from Italy and France, but vermouth in in Spain is totally different
1: yeah yeah it it is interesting because people are like okay vermouth what is that that rings a bell and then isn't that a thing in a martini and then a martini is a cocktail but martini is also a brand of vermouth martini rosso uh so vermouth uh whether it's in france italy or spain is all the same drink it's a fortified aromatized uh wine uh, but the spanish vermouth or the trend in Spain, or you know what has always been popular in Spain for the last century has been to drink uh, sweet red vermouth. There's a little bit of white vermouth. Whereas if you go to say. Um, France, you can get, uh, you'll also see dry white vermouth. And then in Italy, the vermouths or gin tend to be a little more bitter. I mean, Italian vermouths are great. All vermouths are fantastic. But in, in, it, people in those countries don't so much drink it straight like we do. And we drink it uh, on tap. And I think that is what's quite unique to the
0: experience here. So Avery likes the white. I like the red. And I'll make it by pouring it. I can't, I, yeah, I pour it over ice with a slice of orange and a splash of soda am I doing it right? You are. You're doing it right. And there's
1: there's different ways. So if you go to a bar in Barcelona, they will always have like the seltzer bottle, uh, you know, one of those old kind of um, plastic seltzer bottles on the table. And you will add, you can add a little bit of, of soda to your vermouth. I don't like it with soda. I like it straight. Uh, I find that I like the kind of the, the kick that it has when it's straight. But you can have it straight. You can have it with orange. You can have it with seltzers. But effectively, how you're doing it is correct. I think uh, generally with Spanish vermouth, it is orange and not lemon, though, uh, because it already has kind
0: of an orangey quality
1: to it. So, so you're bang on.
0: So I'll move over very quickly to sangria, hmm. which I've had a I've had a Cava sangria. I've had a nice red one. But when I was in Granada, I also got a summer sangria, which did have lemon in it. So what are some of the differences in, in sangria? Yeah, it's a funny one, sangria.
1: It, it, it's a drink that I feel like often people visiting Spain know more about than Spain. Well, maybe not Spaniards than, than than me, perhaps. I don't drink much sangria at all. So I feel like I don't know it that well. I actually have a plan for after this video, my sort of plan for the next cooking video is to make different types of sangria. And so to make a red, a white, and a sparkling and kind of learn about the dish, uh, sorry, the dish, learn about the drink. But effectively, if you stumble into a bar in, in Madrid or, or you know or Barcelona and you ask for sangria, the locals generally aren't gonna ask for it. And so what they're gonna serve you is gonna be a, a simple kind of red wine and lemonade mixture. Uh, but real true sangria is obviously with, with, with rum and brandy uh, and the, the fruit is macerated in there. But a lot of these places will just do kind of a simple sugar kind of combo so you have to be a little bit careful with sangria but it's a wonderful drink if it's done properly and i'm looking forward to kind of kind of not saying i'm going to resurrect sangria but but at least on the youtube channel give it kind of its place that's due because i think it can be a wonderful drink you know i've never seen yali my wife make sangria or any of her friends for example and the way i'm going to make it with the rum and the this and that like they wouldn't possibly do that so i am curious about what was in your summer sangria
0: I have a picture of it, and I'll have it posted on the episode page at thehotairpodcast.com. You'll have to send it to me because I would like to know. But but yeah, lemon. I mean,
1: generally it doesn't have lemon. I mean, you could put any fruit in there, but usually it's orange, apple. You could put peach in there, kind of whatever's in season. Actually, I bought some kiwi fruit. I was going to think of putting kiwi in my sangria, so I thought that would be that would that would be a nice little kiwi touch. But um, I'm just going to start
0: experimenting. I got it in the market in in Granada, and. Okay. It was sold to me as a summer sangria, huh. and I didn't like it. By the way, oh, then it was it white wine instead of red
1: wine. No, is that was that the difference?
0: No, it was red with lemon. Hmm. But in Granada, I mean, it's it's an interesting place, especially in the market. I was watching uh, somebody eating anchovies with salt and vinegar chips. And oh yeah, that was it. Was that was kind of incredible?
1: Yeah, that I mean, a classic combination is. Pickled or vinegar cured anchovies with uh, plain potato chips, and you put the anchovy on the potato chip. That is an amazing combination. And you got the vinegariness of the of the pickled anchovy on the on the potato chip. Uh, that is, you know, if you go to someone's house in in Spain and they serve potato chips, sometimes they'll put uh, conservas, uh mussels, canned mussels, or some sort of anchovies that are pickled on top of the potato chips. It's a really popular kind of aperitif to
0: serve. James, one of the hardest things to do in this world that we live in is uh, blogging or podcasting or YouTube is to do travel videos and you do them really well. Um, I was unaware that you're, you know, that you had a background in, in filmmaking with your dad, uh, but it does speak to how well these videos are put together and the great work that you do and how you've woven that into uh, Devour Tours.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I just, I love doing it. I. It's interesting how in life, you know, I worked as a TV commercial director. I never really f- fit into the advertising world, so I got out of it. But it's interesting how you accumulate certain skills over your life that then you do find a, a place to use them. Um, I hate the idea of making a um, a commercial for like an advertising agency, but I love the idea of filming a walking to the villages around San Sebastian, eating and drinking and, and editing that together. I, I think that's amazing. I, I don't edit all my own videos these days. I I work with a guy... Uh, Carlos, who helps me with the editing because it's just a time issue. But um, but I love the whole process.
0: James, I actually prepared about 16, 17 questions for this. I've actually reached the end. So the question, <laughs> the question now is, what question should I have asked you that I did not? What have I missed? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I guess
1: we can't talk about the future because we don't know what that looks like. Uh, I would love to... Um, you know I, I guess my vision for what I would love the future to look like for um, devour. we're still trying to figure that out. I, I see that there's a way for us to, even in a world where people can't, say, travel midterm, or, or there is a way for us to kind of serve our mission of con- connecting curious people with with local places and local local people, even in an online world in say two, three years. because imagine if you were going to come to Spain, once a year, or once every two years, or even once in your lifetime, how can you keep living that experience uh, long-term? And I wonder if there's gonna be more kind of online travel in the future. So you'll still make your trip, but if you're only gonna go to Spain once every five years, how could you visit Spain kind of once every year, but maybe that's through doing a cooking class live through Zoom with somebody who's there and it kind of helps you kind of bridge the gap between all those physical trips you can take. So I, I see that in the future and I guess in the future of YouTube, I would just love to I'd love to make more videos all around the country, you know, some of these places you've mentioned. So you know, once this is all said and done, I would like to travel more and um, and just full time. Just I don't know, <laughs> help people discover this country.
0: James, thanks so much for uh, taking the time and uh, speedy uh, recovery out of quarantine, like the rest. <sighs> of us. Thank you, thank you, man. I hope all is well in Canada, quarantine wise. I think we're all
1: we're all in a similar boat, you know, in one way or another. So you know, hopefully this ends soon for everyone's sake.
0: Next year, Avery has one of those big birthdays. We're going to spend the next little while trying to figure out where we'll spend three weeks of 2021. Madrid, Cordova, Sevilla, Malaga, Granada, Cadiz, Segovia, Toledo. And even if we do all that, we still haven't been to Valencia, which is the home of Paella, or Zaragoza, the home of Goya, and some really great wine. I've posted all of our Spain travel and TAPA suggestions in the show notes of this episode at hotairpodcast.com. Until then, we've got plenty of time to plan the trip and learn the language.
2: La Nina Estia Mal. The girl is unwell. Perdón, señor, ¿cómo se llama? Excuse me, sir. What is your
0: name? Thanks for listening to You May Also Like. You may also like our website at youmayalsolike.net. The show is produced by Evan Serminski and built for your ears by everyone at the SoundOff Media Company.